Open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. So today, actually yesterday at 6 p.m., was the official uh, Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Weeks. So today is the day of Pentecost. It's not just that in the calendar of the church, but this, this is in the Jewish calendar, Feast of Pentecost, today's the day. And so I purposefully uh, chose to go into the book of Acts knowing that today would be Pentecost Sunday. It is the day of Pentecost, and we want to talk about Pentecost. So last week we talked about the work of waiting. We looked in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus told his disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem. Today we're going to talk about the work of the Spirit at Pentecost. Now, more than likely we're not going to finish today and I'm not going to try to rush through this because there's a whole lot for us to look at when we consider this very, very important passage of Scripture so we began this series of messages by talking about the work of waiting in Acts chapter 1 before Jesus ascended to the Father. He commanded his disciples to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father. They were to wait for the promised Holy Spirit and the power that they would receive to be witnesses to Jesus. Forty days after the resurrection of Christ, Christ ascended to the Father and his disciples went to Jerusalem and they waited, and we know they waited for 10 days because Pentecost comes 50 days after first fruits, which was the day Jesus was resurrected. They waited for 10 days, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, the Holy Spirit was poured out in power upon those disciples waiting in the upper room. Today, when we begin to look into Pentecost, we're going to take some time so that we can better grasp the significance of Pentecost for us today as the church, because it is still significant for us today, and we are the church. So in these messages today and probably next week, and I'm not sure how far beyond that, I want to push back against the tendency in our culture to dumb things down and to deliver a steady diet of fluff. You know, that's what a lot of people who are Christians want. They want fluff. They want to go to a church and they want to get fluff and they want to get fluffed up. But fluff won't save you and fluff won't empower you and fluff won't sustain you. Fluff just kind of burns up in the fire. There's no substance to it. So I'm going to push against that today. And we do that, I think, sometimes in our churches because we think people either cannot or will not endure sound doctrine. Well, you not only can endure it, you must endure it if you are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So as we learn some of these truths woven in the tapestry of Scripture, we seek a more full understanding of our Savior and of our salvation. That in turn will help us grow and mature in the knowledge of His love and the power to be His witnesses. Because when it's all said and done, that is why God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we would have 
the power to be his witnesses. Now, that's a simple statement, but it carries with it a very deep meaning. And it means much more than we on the surface think that it means. So we'll endeavor to talk about some of those things as we talk about Pentecost. So let's read. I'm going to read to you the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. We're not going to do the whole chapter today. We're going to look at the first 13 verses. So read with me as I read Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through verse 13. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone, you need to listen closely to what the scripture is telling us here. And everyone heard each in his own language in which they were born, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking them, said, They are full of new wine. Or as we would say today, they're drunk. That is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the power of your word to change us and to transform us, to renew our minds, to wash our minds, that we would be a people more conformed, transformed, changed by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, changed and conformed into the image, the very image of the Son of God. We ask that you would do this for your glory we ask that you would do it, that we would be a church, that even Christ's fellowship here in Taylor, Texas, would be a church, a powerful witness to Christ for the glory of the Father. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's review some basics about the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost is called the Feast of Weeks in Leviticus 23. Uh, so if you go to Leviticus 23, this is where God introduces uh, the feast as he's giving Israel uh, the law concerning all of these things. Pentecost is celebrated 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. The Lord Jesus was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. And he is the fulfillment of that feast in particular, but he is also the fulfillment of all the feasts in particular. So I want you to get this picture. We're, today is 50 days after what would have been the resurrection of Jesus. We know Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. 
We know it was a Sunday, the first day of the week, because the Feast of First Fruits always falls on the first day of the week after the seventh completed Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So from the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which comprises Passover and Unleavened Bread, the Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath is a Saturday. That's the last day of the week. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that would have been the regular Sabbath. And so the day of first fruits or the Feast of First Fruits is always on the first day of the week after the regular Sabbath. This is why we know Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. Well, that's first fruits. Today we're talking about Pentecost. Pentecost, it's not called Pentecost in the Old Testament, it's called weeks. In another place, it's called the Feast of Harvest because all the feasts are, are tied to the cycle of harvest. And there's a reason for that. Because God has created the world in such a way that everything gives witness to Christ. John 15, Jesus didn't just happen to be walking by a vineyard and said, Man, I think these grapevines will be a great metaphor to help my disciples understand what it means to be in me and I in them. No, listen, God, before there was anything except God, knew exactly how he would create grapes and grape vines to give witness to that very thing that Jesus used to help us understand our relationship with him. The same for the feast. They're around the cycle of harvest because the cycle of harvest and the very creation itself and the way things grow, planting seed and harvesting, all of that teaches us about our salvation and how we grow and how we become fruitful in the things of God. In other words, all the creation is a big object lesson to help us understand who we are in Christ and what God has done in saving us. And so 50 days from first fruits, from the day of the resurrection of Jesus, count 50 days and you come to Pentecost. Or it's called the Feast of Weeks because you count seven weeks. So first fruits is on a Sunday. That means the next Saturday is the first Sabbath and you count seven completed Sabbaths. Add one day to the first day of the week, and you come to Pentecost. That's today. So Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. Guess when the Holy Spirit was poured out? On the day we call Sunday, the first day of the week. So Leviticus 23 records the order of the feast of the Lord. Pentecost is just one of them. And here are the feasts. There's seven of them listed in Leviticus 23. They are Passover. They're listed in this order. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, weeks, or Pentecost as we call it today. It's a Greek word that means 50. Trumpets, atonement, and the seventh feast listed there is tabernacles. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, weeks, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles. These are the seven feasts given to us in Leviticus 23. I want you to know that Jesus is not just the fulfillment of one or some of those. He is the fulfillment of all of those. 
Let me give you a very quick thumbnail sketch of how Jesus is the fulfillment of those. Jesus is our Passover lamb. So all of these feasts given to Israel, when Israel is at Mount Sinai, we're going to talk about Mount Sinai today. When Israel is at Mount Sinai receiving the law from God, remember God gave the law to Moses and then they have this, this thing where God says, gather the nation around the mountain, but don't touch the mountain. And it was so scary for the children of Israel. They said, Moses, we don't want God to ever speak to us again. You talk to God and then you tell us what God says because he's too scary for us. And it was so scary that the Bible says even Moses was exceedingly fearful because of the presence of God and the majesty of God. So he gives Israel these feasts, and these feasts are what we call types and shadows. They're foreshadowings. They're given for a reason. They're not given for the sake of the feasts themselves. They're given to point us to something, to show us something. And that something is not a something, it's a someone. They're given to point us to Jesus, because Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our unleavened bread. He became sin for us, and like leaven, he was put away from us. He was put into the tomb. Jesus is the first fruits of God's harvest. He is the first sheave of resurrection brought into God the Father. He's the first of many to come. That's what first fruits represented. It was the first sheave of the grain harvest. It was the first sheave of barley that was brought and and waved before the Lord. It began the grain harvest. The next is Pentecost or weeks, seven weeks later, plus one day, 50 days later is Pentecost. It marks the continuation of the grain harvest. Specifically, it's the beginning of the wheat harvest. But at Pentecost, you don't wave a sheave of grain. You bring two loaves of bread. We'll talk more about that a little bit later, too. Jesus, then you have this long gap from somewhere in May or June all the way to the fall of the year. And the next series of feasts begins with trumpets, sometimes called the head of the year because it was the civil new year, but the Beginning of the year really was at Passover. That was the religious calendar. That's where everything began. You might say their fiscal year began with trumpets, if we could say that. Jesus is not just the head of the year. He's the head of the church. And he's the head of all things. He has ushered in the new and acceptable year of the Lord He is the promised one trumpeted by angels who has come and will come again. He fulfills trumpets. Jesus is our atonement. He is our great high priest. We just finished going through the entire book of Hebrews. We're almost finished with it. We preached through it on Sunday and we taught through it and talked through it on Wednesday. And we learned as we went through Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest who offered himself and passed behind the veil to sprinkle his own blood as the atoning sacrifice once and for all. Jesus is our, is our atonement. 
Jesus is God with us. He is the fulfillment of tabernacles. In the Old Testament, what did Isaiah say? And a son shall be born, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. We're not waiting for that son to be born. We're not waiting for that son to come back. He's already come. He is coming back. But we're not waiting for tabernacles to be fulfilled. It's already been fulfilled because Jesus, guess what? He lives with us. He is in us and we are in him. He is tabernacling with us right now by the Holy Spirit. He indwells us by the Holy Spirit. We abide in him and he in us. Now in spirit, but one day face to face, he has promised to never leave us and to never forsake us. He didn't say, once I come back, I'm never going to leave you and never forsake you. He said, no, right now, I want you to know, and church, you need to know this right now. The promise of Jesus is that he will never leave you and never forsake you. He is our tabernacle. He has promised to never leave us, to never forsake us, to be with us even to the end of the age, even to the ingathering of all things. That's another name for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the Feast of Ingathering because it marks the end of the harvest season. So you have the grain harvest beginning with uh, first fruits, continuing with Pentecost. But in the fall of the year, you have the grape harvest. You got the olives, you got the completion of the harvest before winter sets in. It's called the Feast of Ingathering. And there is coming a day when God will ingather or bring together all things in Jesus. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these feasts. Pentecost, the feast we're looking at today, signifies 50 it's always celebrated 50 days from first fruits on the first day of the week. We should note the significance of the first day of the week in the life of the church. Sunday is called the Lord's Day because it is the day of His resurrection. It's also the day the Lord poured out His Holy Spirit upon the church. And the symbolism of the first day of a new week is the symbolism of a new creation. So I don't want you to miss this symbolism of a new creation. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when Paul writes, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He didn't say if any man be in Christ, one day he'll be a new creation. He said if any man be in Christ, he is. He is right now a new creation. Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, he said, circumcision does not matter. It does not mean anything. The only thing that matters is a new creation. God didn't just accidentally allow the resurrection to happen on the first day of the week. He didn't just accidentally allow the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to occur on the first day of the week. He purposefully raised up his son on the first day of the week. He purposefully poured out his Holy Spirit on the first day of the week because that symbolism of a new creation is right there in the first day of the week. And we are called as sons and daughters of the Most High God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are called new 
creations. And we live in the reality of a new creation. Now, I say that, and some people say, well, earth still looks the same to me. You missed the point. You missed the point entirely. There is renewal coming, yes, to this physical earth and yes, to these physical bodies. Why? Because you have already experienced the renewal that's been given to you by the power of resurrection in Jesus Christ. You have already been saved. It's a completed deed. It's a completed work by Jesus. You are being saved right now as even as you listen to the gospel being preached in the word of God, your mind is being renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. That is your ongoing salvation, sanctification. This is the spirit of God in you, conforming you to the image of Christ, renewing your mind to the truth. And we one day will be saved ultimately when this mortality puts on immortality and this corruption puts on incorruption. And you and I don't have to wonder if that day is coming. That day is as certain as the sun rising in the morning and setting this afternoon. It's as certain as that because the sun has already risen. Not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N. Because Jesus is the risen Son, you can be sure that you will experience the ultimate salvation, spirit, soul, and body. There's no question about that. And there is symbolism here. When we talk about the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit, that gives us that assurance. At Pentecost, there were two leavened loaves of bread that were waved before the Lord. Remember at first fruits, they brought the first sheaves of barley and waved them before the Lord. Well, at Pentecost, they're not bringing sheaves of grain. They're bringing loaves of bread. Now, these aren't like two loaves of Mrs. Baird's or H-E-B or Walmart bread you might go to the bread aisle and buy. These were very different loaves of bread. They were quite large, and there was quite a process to make them. And they would bring these loaves, and they were specifically leavened. Now, why is that significance? Well, if you remember the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, why is it called the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Because it, the bread couldn't have any leaven in it. In fact, they were to clean their houses and get rid of all the leaven which under the old covenant, under that old system, what did leaven represent? It represented sin. Now, what's interesting, Jesus gives a parable, and he said the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that leavens. The lump. A little bit is put in, and it leavens the whole thing. Is Jesus liking the kingdom to sin? Absolutely not. So what is the leaven of the kingdom now that Jesus is talking about? This is significant, for at Pentecost we see Christ, our first fruits, joined to his body, the church, 
by the leaven of the Spirit to form one new loaf that is offered up to God. So when those loaves are brought, they've got barley, they've got wheat, they've got this grain, and it goes through this purification process, and they make this loaf of leavened bread, and they present it to the Lord, leavened bread. And there's two loaves, not one, but two. The leaven in the loaves represents the work of Christ in death and resurrection. Like wine, bread pictures for us the power of God that turns death into life. All of this reminds us that in Christ, God took the power of death and turned it into the power of life through the resurrection. And this is why we have no reason to fear death, for in the resurrection of Christ, death is forever lost its power over those who belong to Jesus. And that promise of victory over death and of resurrection life is made certain for us by the indwelling Holy Spirit that is poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit is still being poured out and filling believers today as God resurrects them from the dead and brings them to life in Jesus Christ by grace through faith. It's like I told the little children, if you are saved, if you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. The measure then for the Spirit's work and power in the life of the believer is not how gifted they are in the Spirit, but how fruitful they are in the Spirit. And when we talk about Pentecost, for many, they may believe that it is the gifts of the Spirit that provide the measure of one's walk in the Spirit, but that's not what the Scripture teaches us. According to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in fact, the gifts of the Spirit are not a measure of how spiritual, but how carnal a believer can become. In 1 Corinthians 13, it is the fruit of the Spirit that Paul points us to, to make manifest the Spirit's work in our life through our love for one another. That work of the Spirit, that fruit of the Spirit, is the true measure of the Spirit's work in our life. On Pentecost, God poured out His Spirit not for our glory through our giftedness, but for His glory through our fruitfulness. Because Jesus teaches us in Matthew and John 15 that by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So the more fruitful our lives are, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, the more our Father is glorified. So we see Pentecost has its roots, not in the New Testament account of the events recorded for us in the book of Acts. In fact, Pentecost has its roots in the Old Testament. And the significance of Pentecost goes all the way back, not just to Mount Sinai, but beyond that. Genesis 11, verse 1. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to leave you to do that. But let me read you the first chapter of Genesis, I mean the first verse of Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Genesis 11 gives us the account of the Tower of Babel. Remember when the Tower of Babel happened? We have the flood and after the flood... Uh, the nations, so in Genesis 10, you have the 70 nations recorded there, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Their sons and grandsons made up the 70 nations of the earth. 
Those 70 nations are recorded there for us in Genesis 10. In Genesis 11, we come to the account of the Tower of Babel. And what was the purpose of the Tower of Babel? They were going to build this tall tower, ascend into heaven, so that if God ever flooded the earth again, they'd be safe. Now, all sorts of warning flags for us as believers ought to go up right there. Because what did God give to Noah as a sign that he would never flood the earth again? The rainbow. In case you believe that the rainbow was invented by gay people to celebrate Gay Pride Month, go back to your Bible and read it again. The rainbow was created by God as a sign for his children of his Promise to never flood the earth again by, to never destroy the earth again by flood. Please push against that. You don't have to do it in an offensive way. But be sure if you run across someone who doesn't understand the significance of the rainbow, don't let that be hijacked without telling someone the truth, they deserve the truth. They might not accept it, they might not care about the truth, but at least you tell them the truth. So, for your reference, Genesis 11 records this account of the Tower of Babel. At Babel, it says, the whole world had one language. That word there is literally lip. What it literally says is this, now the whole earth had one lip. We translated language to help us understand the meaning there. So the world literally had one lip or one language. That could also suggest that the world in possessing one language also had some form of confessional unity. In other words, they were all working together to build this tower in rebellion to God. So they were unified in more things than just their language, but that was a false confession of a false god. So if they weren't worshiping the true and living God, then they're worshiping false gods, even if that God is themselves, which is what you see very often today. We don't believe in other gods. No, you just believe in yourself. You don't believe there's other God's out there. You're not bowing down to some idol you carved and set up in your living room. You're just worshiping yourself. Guess what? It's just as sinful. It will send you to hell just as quick as worshiping a totem pole will. You got that? So listen, in the beginning, God commanded man to fill the earth and to multiply. Remember that from Genesis, the very beginning when God created Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, guess what was not happening at Babel? After the flood at Babel, all the nations of the earth resisted being scattered in order to fill the earth. Instead, they solidified themselves against God. And at Babel, the nations united to build a tower that was a symbol of man's autonomy and rebellion against God. And the tower was built to be like an ark that would save them, that would protect them from God's judgment, just like Noah's ark saved Noah and his family. And up to that point, the whole world had one lip, remember, one language and one idolatrous belief system. And God says, oh, this can't stand. God comes down and in his grace, in an act of decreation, you understand what I mean? They have one language, you're all working together, and God, in an act of decreation, brings confusion to their language 
and puts a stop to their building project. And at Babel then, when God does this, we see this is the birth of all the languages and all the pagan religions of the world because they all scattered because they couldn't communicate. God scattered them. Well, what in the world does Pentecost have to do with Babel? Well, here's what it has to do with it. At Pentecost, God overturned Babel. At Babel, we see God confusing man's language and scattering the nations. At Pentecost, we see Babel overturned and God restoring to the people a pure lip. Listen again to these verses, beginning in Acts chapter 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men. Why were they dwelling there? Why were these men from all these nations there? Because Pentecost was one of three feasts in which God commanded every male appear before me in Jerusalem. And so they were there, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles. Every male is to appear before me. So this is why there were Jews from all, literally all over the world in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. That's why there were all these languages represented there on the day of Pentecost because it was a feast that God commanded every male appear before him. These were obedient Jews keeping the law, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Pentecost as God had commanded. And when, and when the Spirit of God was poured out, they heard this sound. And, and when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled. They stood in wonder, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? We know that they're not bilingual, trilingual, quadlingual. <laughs> these are dumb Galileans. They don't even have a high school diploma. They can barely read if they can read at all. How is it that we hear them proclaiming the wonderful works of God each in our own language? Verse 11, we hear them. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Well, it means that God kept his promise. This underscores the significance of Isaiah's word lamenting his own unclean lips and the people of unclean lips that he dwelt among. Listen to Isaiah 6, verse 5. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees the king and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord, of host. When we see the king, we see ourselves in relation to him and we realize our need. And God promised a day when he would restore to the peoples, plural, a pure lip. Zephaniah 3 9, listen to the prophet. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, a pure lip. There's that word again. That's literally what it says. I will restore to the peoples a pure lip that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. And that is what happened on the day of Pentecost. God restored to the peoples the pure 
lip that they may call on the name of the Lord and serve him in one accord. At Babel, we see the climax of a building project initiated by sinful man and gracefully stopped by God. At Pentecost, we see a building project initiated by God himself. We see the church, the body of Christ, being established by God as the true ark we must enter into through faith in order to be saved. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter, recorded for us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Peter writes, Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism itself does not save us. Jesus saves us. Christ saves us and joins us to his body by his spirit. You get that? Christ saves us and joins us to his body by his spirit. Through baptism, we are initiated into his body, which is the church. And in the church, just like a child does in a home, we are to grow up and mature. In the church, in the community of believers, we are to grow up into Christ in all things. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost marked the birth of the New Testament church. Not the birth of the church. Because the church existed before the New Testament. The church existed with the creation of the first man. The church existed with the people God chose to bear his name and to be witness for him in the earth. But with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, it marked the birth of what we call the New Testament church. The Spirit would bring together every tribe, every tongue, and every nation into one new man and one holy nation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The gift of tongues at Pentecost was a powerful sign that the nations are no longer being scattered but are now being gathered together by Christ in His church. The gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost was the gift of speaking the praise of God in every language under heaven as a witness. The gift of tongues brings every nation into the new lip that Zephaniah spoke of in his prophecy. No longer will God deal only with one nation, but all languages will now become part of God's new lip. Pentecost brings to bear the promise of God that all the nations would be blessed through believing Abraham. We are part of an international, in fact, we are part of a universal family. <coughs> Excuse me. At Babel, the nations sought to make a name for themselves, and God thwarted their effort. God had his own building project to build one new church from both Jew and Gentile. That's the difference between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. What happened at Pentecost was God poured out His Spirit on all flesh. And as we go through the book of Acts, we'll see that it wasn't just poured out on Jews. 
It was poured out on Samaritans. It wasn't just poured out on Jews and Samaritans, but it was poured out on Gentiles. So that what God had proclaimed from the beginning, what God had intended from the beginning, was that all nations would worship Him. The church is God's people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And they are the heirs of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. And through the church, God fulfills his promise that he would make Abraham's name great and through him bless all the families of the earth. Against the backdrop of Genesis 10 through 12, Pentecost is God's great reunification project. The nations at Babel who had been walled off from each other by diverse languages and beliefs are at Pentecost brought together as one new worshiping nation sharing one lip. I'll never forget a missionary to China. I sat down with him one day and he started showing me characters in Mandarin Chinese. And if I remember correctly, I think I do, the Mandarin symbol for come here was a hill with a big cross and two small crosses on the other side of it. The symbol for household looks like a boat with eight open mouths. I mean, you think, well, well, where would that have come from? You don't think on the day of Pentecost, you don't think there were Chinese people gathered in Jerusalem? There were people from every nation, from every corner of the world. Because when you go back and read your history and see what God did through the Jewish people, through the kingdoms that ruled the earth, that brought us all the way down to the Roman Empire, and for all of those centuries, those Jews were commanded to come from wherever they lived to appear before God. You don't think there were people living in what we call China today? Asia is listed there. You say, well, that was Turkey. That's what we call Turkey. No, that was called Asia. There were people from all over. And we see that the salvation of God, the outpouring of God's Spirit has brought, has brought the nations together. At Babel, they were dispersed. At Pentecost, they are brought together. It doesn't mean we have to all speak the same language. It means we all speak one language. And that language is Jesus is Lord. The Lord, He is God. God knows how to use different languages and different alphabets. What God has done is given to his people one lip, the language of their heart, the language of their mind to worship him. That is just part of the significance of Pentecost. And we're going to stop there. And next week, we're going to pick it up and we're going to talk about Pentecost and Mount Sinai. Don't miss it. It's going to be really interesting because some phenomenal things happen for us, not only at Pentecost, but they happen at Mount Sinai. So I, I want to invite you to get ready to come to the Lord's table. You don't have to be a member of Christ Fellowship Church to come to this table. 
But I do ask that you be a member of the church of the Lord Jesus, that international, that universal church. And as you trust in Jesus, you know that you are invited to this table of grace. This table that is a reminder, not just for us, but also for God of the promises that he has made to us in Jesus Christ. And he is faithful. Amen. Let's all stand. I'm going to give you your charge. And we'll sing the doxology. Like it was at Babel, we live in a culture today that is unified in its efforts against God. This is not hidden. It's not hard to see. In fact, it's becoming much more open and much more something that the world is proud of. This demands a response from the church. And the question is, what will be the response of the church? Will we wilt and hide? Or will we rise up and stand firm in the truth? Summer is coming. You think about a tree. I have trees in pots. I have plants in pots. And I can always tell when they need water. Because you go outside and their leaves are drooping. And you pour water in the pot. You water those roots. And guess what? In just, in just a little bit of time, they're not drooping anymore. They're, they're, they're back to life. It's a very good picture of us as the church. The psalm talks about us being like trees planted by rivers of water whose leaves do not fail who gives forth its fruit. And if we're not planted deep in God and the roots of our faith going deep and tapping into the water of His Spirit that lives on the inside of us, when the cares of this world, when the tribulation of this world comes to us, we will not be able to stand. And God has given us His Holy Spirit that we would be a witness against the darkness of this world. So church, I charge you to strive that your roots go deep, to not settle for the easy things, but to go after God and to plant yourself deep in Him and to break open this Word and find the truth that can set us free from the things that hold us in bondage. For the opposition of the world is not coming, it's here. And you will face it and you will have to deal with it. The question is, what will you do when it comes to you? Will you wilt or will you stand? My prayer is that you will stand and that you will stand bright and firm and courageous in Jesus. Amen.